0: I was actually uh, listening to the Deep Purple Podcast not that long ago. You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode number 109, Influences, Ian Pace, with Daniel Glass. And coming to you from the suburbs of Chicago, I'm
1: your host, Nathan Beaudry. And coming to you from the suburbs of Providence, I'm your co-host, John Cookie Dough Matola.
0: <laughs> no. Now, based on the last few episodes, this means you either like or do not like cookie dough, and I'm gonna guess you like it.
1: Yes, because here's a little piece right now that I'm eating. You're just eating cookie dough while we're recording. Oh my god! I've been where's the professionalism I've been thinking about it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I didn't have time to turn it into a cookie, so <laughs> it's gonna be the dough. I've been thinking about it. I was thinking about it through like I don't know for a while, so I cut it up into four little. Or a little equal quadrants and I'm yeah. um, just having little bites. What kind of cookie? Is it just traditional chocolate chip cookie dough? It is, or? It is double, double chocolate. Ooh. You got raw My eggs favorite. in there? Raw eggs? Eh, never hurt nobody. Yeah, there you go. That's fine. Ah, eh, look at Rocky. Rocky did just fine. Rocky did just fine. You can get salmonella or nothing.
0: Nope. Nope. Um Hey, so if you want to help support the Deep Purple podcast, there's a few ways to do it. First... Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Why don't you? It only takes a minute of your time. We really appreciate it. It helps new people discover the show. You can buy some of our merch at our Etsy store, and then you can also become a patron on Patreon or PayPal for as little as $1 a month. You can help support the show. You can help buy um, flour, sugar, eggs, uh, and chocolate so that John can make his homemade cookie dough there and just sit there and eat it uh, during the show. Uh, We'd really, really appreciate that. And um, speaking of Patreon, Patrons. Oh, my goodness. Coming in here at the executive level, we've got the $20 Shades of Deep Pockets tier, Ryan M. at the $15 Highball Shooter tier, Alan Ain't Too Proud to Beg, the Turn It Up to $11 tier, Frank Teel, Gard Mortensen, Clay Wambacher, and Mikkel Steen, and at the $10 Someone Came tier, Steve Seaborg of NameOnAnything.com and alltheworldstage.net, Jeff Bryce and Gerald Kelly, and also Victor Campos And Richard Fusey, thank you to all of you for your support of the Deep Purple Podcast. We really appreciate it. Then also, check out deepdivepodcastnetwork.com. We've got eight shows in the network right now. Don't ask me to name them all off the top of my head. But we got some great, great shows. And if I tried to name them off the top of my head, I would be sure to leave someone out and make them feel bad. Uh, Really appreciate the Deep Dive, all those great uh, podcasts in our little makeshift network that we have here. Thank you so much. Then Apple podcast reviews for this week, our review is coming to us from, oh my goodness, I didn't write it down, but I think it's Great Britain or the UK. Um, This one is from August. It is uh, far 75 stars. Wait, the subject line is Philip H. So I don't know what that means. But anyway. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe if that's that's Philip uh, Philip H. Farr. I don't, I don't know. But um, I, I included – I was happy about this one because he said, I heard this site mentioned by Ian Pace on his YouTube channel, so decided to Google it and subscribe, and the few shows I've heard have been excellent. So thank you, Philip or Farr. We appreciate that. Um, Wow. You know, Ian did. uh, I I did write in a question to Ian last summer and he uh, responded to it and put they put up briefly the the, the deep purple podcast on there. So I was like, oh, cool. Uh, So I can't believe we actually got a listener from that. Thank you. That's really great. Nice. And then um, so this, John, this is uh, I'm going to try not to get emotional here, but um, our good friend, Mike Erickson. So I went to the mailbox the other day. I was very excited because I was expecting my my CD copy of uh, the new Ray Fenwick anthology, which I just got in. So I ran to the mailbox, and I was like, ah, it's not there on the release date. But I went there, and I had this letter in the mail uh, with these stamps from Sweden, and it's from our mm-hmm. old friend Mike Erickson.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I said, oh, Mike Erickson sending me a letter in the mail. Well, that's unusual. Uh, I wonder what this is about. So inside is this letter, and I'll hold it up right there. But it's just a little envelope, and it says, Found this. I think you should have it, Mike Erickson. I said, What the heck is this going to be? And I opened it up, and John, I I kid you not, I was almost brought to tears when I looked inside what was in here. Um, And here it is. It's a ticket stub from the Butterfly Ball performance at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, Wow. And uh, one doll, one pound entry fee (laughs) to see that show (laughs) seems, seems reasonable. Um, row five seat 33. It's Um, a real ticket. It's a real ticket stub. Honest to goodness, ticket stub. And I was like misty eyed. I'm sitting there like at the mailbox, like I'm like, Oh my God. Cause it's just like, um, obviously if you listen to the show, you know how important the butterfly ball is to me. That concert is to me. Um, and to just to to see this and and not only that just the fact that he found this and knew enough about the show and about us and that he he's like y- you know you should have this and sent, and bothered to send it to me is just like touching on so many different levels so I'm. Uh, I was really, really blown away by that, and really appreciative, Mike, uh, that you that you sent that along to us. And, you need uh, to frame that baby. Yeah, and I'm. I'm thinking. I was almost like, should I do like a frame with that butterfly ball poster back there? That's yeah. the poster. And put like a little serpent thing down below with yeah. this. You know. I need to. So I'm like, I need to go to the frame store, Mike. You just cost me like $200 in getting a frame made. <laughs> totally worth, worth it. it uh but yeah such an such a great piece of history and uh and to to i've even i've even googled it before and i think i've seen found ticket stubs and or stuff and just been like oh that those are kind of pricey so it, i think it's it's even got um um it's
1: i think in it's great condition
0: yeah it's great condition and it's it's um it, it's pristine uh, let me I'm, I'm looking it up right now I, I i know i've looked for ticket stubs for things that were kind of important before and uh i I think this one yeah i've looked for this one and i can't even find it um i'm I'm looking right now let's see (laughs) that's how rare it is um it's it's rare and if i could find it it would probably be kind of pricey is this no that's some other thing at the royal albert hall so yeah i'm not even finding anything for it right now of course with anything I'm, i'm reminded of uh my my uh, my quest for finding butterfly ball stuff back in the mid nineties, iron butterfly ticket stubs popping up was always mm-hmm. iron. For those of you that don't know, iron butterfly has an album entitled ball. So finding butterfly ball was nearly impossible Man. before it became actually accessible. So,
1: see so, you now, what needs to happen next is you get Roger Glover to sign that. Oh my goodness. And well, then, You can die a happy man. Well, you know what? He could sign my
0: album. That would be actually, I I got nothing with the frame yet. I get him. I get Roger Glover to sign my album. I get the the original concert poster there. The ticket stub. Boom. The whole, the whole kit and caboodle. That'd be great. Nate
1: shrine right back there.
0: Exactly. That'd be perfect. But, um, all right. So this week we're coming at you with something a little bit different. Um, Basically, uh, we we uh, we've connected with this gentleman Daniel Glass on social media. Uh, a great drummer, educator, music guy, author, podcaster—you name it. Brick, uh, bricklayer, mason. Uh, what an electrician I don't know he, he can do it all um, and we decided to invite him on the show to talk to talk about Ian Pace being one of his uh, bigger influences in his kind of experience with uh, Ian Pace and with Deep Purple so uh, without further ado we'll take you to that segment of the show but actually there is further ado because before we get there we do have to thank our core level patrons coming in at the $6.66 tier, we have nobody because Richard Fusey is upgraded. If you want to join us, please join us at the $6.66 tier. At the $5.99 nice price tier, we have Fielding Fowler and Dr. Jill Brees. At the $5 Money Lender tier, Greg Sealby, John Convery, Arthur Smith, German Heindel, Adrian Hernandez, Kenny Wymore, Jesper Alman, Alexi the Perfect Stranger, Sleipakov, James North, Mark Hodgetts, Kev Roberts, and Will porter and at the three dollar nobody's perfect here peter gardot ian derosier mark roback anton glaving andrew meyer duncan Leesk, and Stuart mccord sipping his whiskey by the fire thank you to all of our wonderful patrons and now on to our talk with daniel glass All right. This week we are joined by Daniel Glass, who is here to talk about Ian Pace and Deep Purple, um, trying something a little new this week, and talking about getting some uh, uh, storied musicians on and to talk about their background with the band and the, and the members of the band. So, Daniel,
2: uh, thank you so much for joining us. I'm honored uh, and privileged to be here. I've, I'm a new I'm a new fan. I'm an old fan of Deep Purple, but I'm a relatively new fan of your podcast and uh I'm I'm thrilled to be here to really dig into a bunch of trivia about Deep Purple.
1: <laughs> oh, awesome.
2: <laughs> dig into the granular material.
0: So, um for those for our listeners, um obviously you're you are a drummer who is uh, who, who counts Ian Pace among among some of his uh, one of his favorite drummers? Uh, you're an author. You, you were telling us earlier, a music historian. You're a podcaster as well. You've got all this background in music. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background in 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 music and and how you got interested in Deep Purple.
2: Um, well, uh, my my musical life has has had a variety of different stages. I um. I grew up in Hawaii, which is very strange. Most people don't grow up there. <laughs> and um, you would think Hawaii is a, a really weird backwater as far as um, access to what was happening in the world of music. But strangely, it, is a, it's a, it at least it used to be a stop for bands headed to the Far East. So bands going to Australia or Japan, everybody always wanted to stop in Hawaii and have a vacation. And so they would, you know, plan a concert so they could justify having some income come in. (laughs) And then they would take a few days. So I got to see some unbelievable concerts growing up. Um, I had fairly hip parents. Uh, For example, I got to see the uh, Fleetwood Mac Rumors Tour, which was, you know, pretty awesome. Oh, wow. Um, And... uh, My parents were mostly folkies. Um, they, They were a little older than hippies, but they were kind of, they were lefty politically. And a lot of people moved to Hawaii to get away from whatever their life was like on the mainland. So Hawaii in the early 70s was really wide open and all kinds of cool things happening and a big kind of hippie scene or whatever. So my parents hung out with a lot of hippies, even though they weren't, hippies themselves. And um, so th- I got to see like Joan Baez and Arlo Guthrie and those kind of folks in concert when I was a kid. When I was nine, my best friend uh, was 12, which when you're nine and 12, that's kind of a, an enormous difference in age I'm sure. to be hanging out with somebody as much as, you, as, you, as I did. And he was into much more adult things than I was, including like marijuana, which you know, <laughs> was in Hawaii in the seventies was like literally growing on trees pretty much. It was pretty, um, pretty easy
0: to come by. Like
2: just like pretty easy to come by. There, there yes. wasn't
0: a lot of uh crackdown on.
2: No, on definitely growing. not. It was definitely like part of the culture. Pakalolo, you know, we call it, but, uh, One of the things that he turned me on to, he turned me on to four hard rock bands, four hard rock albums, Dark Side of the Moon, Aerosmith, Get Your Wings, um, Black Sabbath, Paranoid, and Deep Purple, Made in Japan. This was probably 1974. So all these albums were fairly new at that time. I was nine or eight and very, my mind was blown by this music. And um, I just remember... You know, just I fell in love with with Deep Purple at that point, and um, I noticed that. And I was sort of starting to play drums myself. I didn't get a drum set till I was twelve or thirteen, but I was taking lessons from the time I was seven, and was really open to drummers. And I noticed, you know, as I got older. Um, when it came time, do I, how do I set up the drums? I'm a left-hander. And so Ian Pace, oh. I saw a setup different than all the other drummers. And I went, okay, he must be left-handed. So I will, um, I must set up the same way. So I am a left-handed drummer because of Ian Pace. He became my first drum hero. And um, I I got into Deep Purple that way.
0: Are, are drums, are drummers like guitarists a lot of times where left-handers will just play right-hand because that's what's,
2: set up for them or what's available? Absolutely. You have to go through a lot of hassle to set up. And everybody calls it backwards, but I don't like to say that. (laughs) I I like to say opposite. I set up opposite of everybody else, you know? So, um, yeah. So I, I got, I got really into Deep Purple. Um, I started when I finally did get into bands. Um, the first band I was in was called Living Wreck, which we named after the Deep Purple song. Um, we uh played actually that band was a Sabbath tribute band, so here I am. this was when I was like, <laughs> "That's funny and this is about seventy nine now i was uh I was in eighth grade, and I got grabbed by a bunch of ninth graders. I was always hanging out with older guys, which was cool, but um to be in their band, and we played like almost entirely Black Sabbath music, which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. There were, really wasn't such a thing as tribute bands, I guess, back at that point. So we were maybe a Black Sabbath cover band. So, you know, I was I was really into hard rock at that time and um, loved it. Um, so we played, I think we played a few Deep Purple tunes. I think we did, I think we played Ring That Neck and um, I think we played Smoke on the Water, or something like that. But uh, in... During that time, and I had written to you about this. Uh, there was, um, I the uh, what you let me know. This was like 1975. I heard ads mm. on the radio that Deep Purple was coming to Hawaii, and this is one of these questions I had, where my whole life I wondered what tour that was and who was on it. I thought it may have been the uh, Burn or Come Taste the Band, but you told me it was um, uh, the uh, no, it was yeah, it was Come Taste the Band. Right it Yeah, it was
0: actually it was actually the yeah, the first show that Tommy Bolin played with them was in Hawaii before they moved That's out east and had that exactly. horrible time at, <laughs> in everywhere else, so people dying um, and yeah, terrible yeah, so terrible stuff.
2: Anyway, then a couple years later, there were ads on the radio that Deep Purple was coming to Hawaii. This was around 1980. And <laughs> yes. uh, I was very excited, and I, I uh, got tickets with the guitar player in my band. And we went down, and and what was a little suspicious was that they were playing at the University of Hawaii in the campus center ballroom, and I was like, I don't know, I think they would play the arena, and and of course it was the, uh, the whatever what do you call it, the new Deep Purple, the bogus Deep Purple, whatever people want to call them. So, I had a chance to see that band, and like most other people, I was totally disappointed that it was not, it's Deep Purple.
0: Yeah, that's you're among the few that got to uh, actually witness that. You didn't see the ad that they took out saying, you know, the following members of Deep Purple will not be performing. Unless no, I mean, probably they. Of.
2: Yeah, no, that that never made it to Hawaii. Those kind of <laughs> things never made it to Hawaii. That was only the L.A. show or whatever, you know. But um, anyway, so uh, I was already hip to burn at that point, and um we, we did a lot of in that band that I was in, we did a lot of listening, um, you know, made in Europe. But Made in Japan, I mean, the, the, the problem is I was really spoiled because Made in Japan was the first album that I, of Deep Purple, that I became obsessed with. And then, you know, I just wasn't, um, I like Machine Head, I've never purchased Machine Head. I don't really listen to it because to me, you know, Space trucking and Smoke on the Water and Highway Star, and isn't Lazy on, yep. is Lazy yeah. on Machine Head? Yeah, those are all. You can't deal with space trucking being anything less than twenty minutes long. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, to to me, Made in Japan is probably the greatest live album, you know, or one of the greatest live albums ever made. It's just it's just lightning in a bottle all the way through. It's incredible. It
0: seems to be the general consensus.
2: With uh, I mean, obviously the circles we travel in, but even in uh,
0: in Twitter outside of our Deep Purple sphere, that 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 album just always comes up obvious for obvious reasons. So, so like as a drummer, then what um, we were. I was talking to John about paradiddles on on our last episode. Yes, I listened to that (laughs) just this very day. As we talk, uh, our our burn episode just recently came out uh, where we broke down the individual tracks. So awesome. um, I mean, what is it about? I mean, can you, as as a drummer and teacher, go into something about Paces technique and his style and where, how it influences you, or where where you think it comes from?
2: Yeah, well. You know, one of the things that I love about all those drummers from that period is that they were reared on jazz or, you know, at least swing jazz. And one of the things I love studying is the the roots of the British invasion, which is just a very interesting time. All those uh, musicians that grew up, born at the end of World War II or a little bit later, um, you know, they were listening to The Voice of America um, the U.S. obviously had used uh, the U.K. as a staging point. I mean, certainly when Germany had taken over all of continental Europe, the United States, the only place they could, they could be was in England. And so, you know, big band music, and then after that time period, bebop music and early rock and roll and rhythm and blues, and then in the early 60s, like instrumental rock and girl groups, you know, and all that kind of stuff was being, like, British kids heard all that. They heard it on Voice of America. There were a lot of Americans there. Another really interesting thing that I learned is that, for example, we talk about Liverpool and the Mercy River as being, like, this important, uh, you know, musical, even though Liverpool is nowhere near London, uh, it's right on the, uh, I guess, on the west coast of of UK, of Britain. So... All the ships that would bring the records over from America would stop there first, and they would have the pick of all of those before they were put on boats to go down the Mercy River to to go to London. So, you know, all this stuff was happening in England, and Ian Pace, uh, you know, as you guys obviously know—have you done a show about Ian Pace specifically yet, or— no, uh, I, not, I haven't had a chance to look over all your shows, but no, not focused just on Ian Pace, but we
0: did kind of whenever a, a new member of the band joins, um, obviously for Ian Pace, it would have been right up, uh, in the original lineup. We did kind of a little bit of background on each musician and what they did before they came into Deep Purple. But in the early days, Ian Pace was, I don't know, 17 or something when he joined Deep Purple. So yeah, unbelievable. He didn't, and he still had a f- you know, a few, a few credits uh, when he, he was in a band called Maze and uh, Maze, yeah. uh, MI6. I think it's the same band, but they just changed the name. So he's had like a little bit
2: of a background, but obviously not much of a background before he joined Deep Purple. Well, his father was a big band leader. And so, you know, again, like guys like Mitch Mitchell, Bill Ward, um, you know, other drummers of that period, John Bonham. I mean, they were, they were exposed to like Max Roach and, um, uh, uh, what's, who's the drummer for Dave Brubeck? Why am I blanking on this? Uh, Joe Morello, uh, Gene Krupa, like they were, they were exposed to, you know, Buddy Rich, of course. So, you know, that there was a lot of that, those guys could all kind of swing. And when you're sort of, when swing is the first style of music that you're exposed to, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it, it stays with you, you know, triplet bass music, I guess you guys are both musicians. So you would, you would, you you understand what I'm talking about, but, um, Ian Pace just, so that, that, you know, what he was exposed to the fact that he had played big band music, he had a, like a really musical sensibility and, um, and had some chops. And when you're talking about paradiddle singles and doubles, you know, a lot of, a lot of sort of rock drummers just left, right, left, right, left, right all the time. But I mean, he, he obviously had some, some training Interestingly, like comparatively, John Bonham had no training and yet had his own incredible incredible style of um you know uh, technique heavy playing so but Ian pace you know not only did he like a lot of times we 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 think about big rock drums, and we think that was sort of a new phenomenon, but a lot of those guys were copying um Gene Krupa, who had a 26-inch or 28-inch bass drum, all those swing era guys, you know, who mm-hmm. had big tubby toms, um, who had very tightly cranked up snares so they could play a lot of fast stuff on the snare. So, you know, John Bonham was the same way. People were talking about, oh, trying to get the Bonham sound. Well, they don't remember that John Bonham's bass drum was empty. You know, there was no mm-hmm. muffling in it. Um, there, there was, it was 28 inches in diameter or 26 inches and Um, you know, he tuned his toms up, even though they were big, they were tuned relatively high so he could get around on them. So not to be too terribly technical, but um, it, it, you know, his style was rooted in jazz. And one of the interesting things when I met him, we had this interesting conversation because I grew up listening to him and then became a jazz drummer. I mean, most of the music I play these days is jazz and swing. I was at a band for 20 years called Royal Crown Review, which was a which is a swing band, but a swing band that hit you like a rock band. It was great stuff. I I checked out uh, some of the a couple of the albums and really, really good stuff. Yeah, um, that's how I got connected to you, actually, was Greg Renoff, who I think you know, uh, who wrote the Van Halen, wrote a a biography of Van Halen, and he wrote the uh, biography of Ted Templeman, Mm -hmm. and I did a couple albums with Ted. So, um, when that book came out, Greg wrote to me and, because he had Ted had mentioned me in the, kindly in his autobiography and the engineer that did a lot of records with us, a guy named Lee Hirschberg, who had done Sinatra records and is a kind of an LA legend also liked, you know, so I got connected to Greg. So, uh, I don't know. Am I, am I making sense here? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I, I guess. I mean, so when I met Ian Pace, I've met Ian Pace twice, and both times, he's like the nicest guy in the world, which you probably get a sense of when you hear him talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and and very gracious, you know, didn't know me from from Adam. Um, but he, uh, we we commented that he was a jazz drummer who took his jazz style and turned it into a rock thing. And I was raised on his rock and roll <laughs> and took that and turned it into a jazz thing, you know, because... I would definitely brought a lot of Ian Pace's style to what I did with Royal Crown Review, you know, or Bill Ward. I mean, I was, you know, or Mitch Mitchell, those kind of guys. Those are the guys that I, I really loved. I was a fan of hard rock of Mm -hmm. seventies, hard rock. Like you guys probably are once, once things got into the eighties, I sort of, I was already getting more into prog rock. And then from there I kind of made the leap to jazz. So I, I, um, you know but I, I what i loved about 70s hard rock is the it, the improvisational factor the fact that the musicians still wanted to improvise you know they wanted to make stuff up on the spot which is why you have the 20 minute version of of uh space truckin mm-hmm. you know or i was telling you there there's another version of ring that neck that's 18 minutes long on the the in concert um, there,
0: there's one i think that's 32 minutes on one of their it, it used i it was one of, i think it's one of those old recordings that used to be a bootleg and they finally did an official release maybe 15 years ago wow. But yeah it's one of those things that would be it's you know almost i i don't even know if they had to split it up when it was on a bootleg record and onto two sides of, of a double record or something but crazy crazy how long some of their
2: performances were but you, you, with all those bands, Zeppelin was the same way. You know, they would do these long instrumental jams. They were exploring uh, artistically. They were really trying to like get somewhere. Hendrix. You know, I mean, sometimes it was cheesy and it and it and it didn't succeed. But uh, but like the rock bands were really trying to walk that tightrope between you know pushing the boundaries and coming up with something new every night. And that again harkens back to jazz. You know, um, Benny Goodman, who was you know big band leader um if you listen to his concert at carnegie hall which i think is you should check it out it's also in my opinion one of the other greatest live albums it's the first live concert album uh and it's that that sort of is in the vein it's it, it was recorded in 1938 but it didn't come out till 1950 i think 59 oh wow because they, they didn't have the LP until 1959, and they only had 78s, which could only handle a small amount of music. So yeah. the, the swing bands would do these long jams, but you never heard it because um, when they would go in the studio, they could only do three and a half minutes of music at a time. But, you know, in, these guys probably were listening to these long kind of swing band jams. And they're very similar in a lot of ways to the kind of thing, like, for example, the song Sing, 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 which mm-hmm. is the most famous Benny Goodman song, um, is uh, the studio version is like, it's two sides. What they would do is they would, um, they would record for three and a half minutes, they would stop, and then they would record for another three and a half minutes, and it would be an A and a B side of a 78 RPM record. So it would be Sing 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 Part 1 and Sing 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 Part 2. And you'd have to turn the record over, but you could imagine what the whole song sounded like. So by the time they got to the Carnegie Hall concert, that band was sort of at its peak before it broke up. Gene Krupa was playing and Harry James, the trumpet player. The song is like 12 and a half minutes long. And when they recorded at Carnegie Hall, there was some different way they recorded it. It was like a radio broadcast or something, so they could record the full jams. Mm-hmm. and when the LP came out, they found these these live tapes in a closet, and that was one of the first live albums that came out, and you can hear, because it's Carnegie Hall, there's one mic suspended above the audience. The fidelity is actually better than what you would hear in a studio at that time, and you're hearing the audience roar the way you would at a modern rock concert, and because it's like one incredible mic, you hear everything and you hear the fidelity of the drums better so for example when john bonham and zeppelin played in carnegie hall whatever the first time that was in 1970 or something like that john bonham was like super stoked because this is where his idol gene krupa had played you know so um i guess one of the things that i love about the drummers of this period was just this kind of go for it attitude and you can certainly hear that on on those tracks on burn you know you guys were saying how um you don't really notice that stuff until you separate the tracks, but pace is yeah. just i mean it's it's epic it's, it's yeah it's, a, it's almost the
0: verse is almost an Ian pace drum solo it 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 yeah. it, border, it goes from it borders from fill into actually full on solo but it's interesting you mentioned the jazz thing because burn was we didn't mention it in that episode, but we mentioned it part, couple years ago when we did an episode on the album burn but the song burn is based on fascinating rhythm uh which when you kind of hear that and you and when you and it's they've got these kind of and deep purple was a an old jazz tune that they took their name from so right when you when you when you see the drummers of this time like you brought up it didn't really occur to me until just listening to you talk but none of the drummers of this time really had a, a a rock reference drummer I I don't want to say none, but they're all when you talk to them, you hear Gene Krupa, you hear um Well Buddy Rich, all that sort of stuff. You never hear them say, oh, this this rock and roll guy from 10 years ago.
2: No, they they did. Uh, Little Richard, uh, mm-hmm. there's a guy named Earl Palmer who's a very mm-hmm. legendary drummer who I became good friends with before he passed away, thankfully. Um, Earl, uh, Earl's drumming on all the Little Richard records was hugely influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the beginning of rock and roll. The mm-hmm. drum intro to rock and roll is literally a note for note. We could say tribute. <laughs> Thievery. I don't Zep- know. Take Zeppelin did a lot of tributes. <laughs> yes, a lot of tributes. Exactly. <laughs> as as to uh, Deep Purple. <laughs> but yeah, but the but the um, the beginning of of Little Richard's Keep a Knockin' from 1956. It's literally note for note. And everybody gets it wrong because they think it starts on one, but it actually starts on the and of three. So there's a three-note pickup. So anyway, but uh, Bonham clearly influenced by Little Richard. I did a two-part podcast about the drumming of John Bonham, which you might want to check out. Oh, cool. Uh, or maybe you could put it in the uh, yeah, show notes. I'll or whatever. put a link. Let me make a note of that. I'll put a link in the show
0: notes. And I did an Ian Pace podcast too. Um, yes, I definitely have that one, and I would yeah. encourage anyone to to take a listen to that. Just kind of your history with uh, Ian Pace and going into kind of some of the some of the same details we're covering, but um, yeah. without having to listen to us. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, but um, it, it's you know so and if you listen to John Bonham's early solos, uh, the stuff he was doing in like sixty nine seventy. He literally takes a Max Roach thing, which is called the Drum Also Waltzes, where it sets up a foot thing, and that's direct, you know, uh, tribute to to John Bonham uh, or to uh, Max Roach. And he he does so many things that you can trace them back to um, to the to the jazz guys. And and so, in any case. also, DJ Fontana, the drummer with Elvis, was mm. was incredibly important to a lot of these guys. Uh, Sun Records, uh, a guy named J.M. Van Eaton played on a lot of the, you know, like the um, Blue Suede Shoes, Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash records and things like that. So these guys were, were listening to all that stuff. And then it was the, the early 60s stuff too. Link Ray and uh, the Beach Boys or, um, you know, a lot of that instrumental rock that was coming out at that time um so you know that that's kind of one of the great things about and then you had like the shadows you know which were 50s british rock you know the band that was backing up little richard um mm-hmm. little richard um oh god i'm getting old my brain is too full <laughs> the hard drive is full <laughs> um cliff richards thank there you there you go so you know there. It was funny because I, I just listened to your first Butterfly Ball podcast a couple of days before this. because oh Not the Butterfly Ball. The um, Jesus Christ Superstar oh, okay. podcast. And your first episode doesn't even really, you know, it's like just all about the musicians mm-hmm. who played on that record, which is great. And a lot of them were sort of inter intertwined, as Nigel Tufnell might say, with the... <laughs> um, with that, you know there was a huge session scene in England in in the fifties and and in the sixties. I interviewed some of those drummers too, a guy named Bobby Graham and a guy named Clem Catini. Um, Clem Catini was in the running to replace to to be the drummer in the New Yardbirds, aka Led Zeppelin.
0: I, I feel um, like I just saw the name Clem Catini like earlier today, and I can't remember what context. But I, I don't
2: know anything else about well, it. You talking. <laughs> you were talking about Lulu. Uh and, and I don't know, maybe you know who Lulu is by now. Lulu was a huge pop star, teen pop idol in England. Oh, I think yeah. her biggest hit was to Sir with Love from the from the movie. Yep. Um well, she was like Patula Clark, who did downtown and some of those kind of tunes. Mm-hmm. But uh anyway, i I'm, I digress. I'm I'm all over the map here because I've been listening a lot to your podcast and trying to tie things in. But it's a the the, the whole period of English early rock is really really cool. I mean, you might. Yeah, have you done stuff about Richie Blackmore's beginnings? I would assume probably. Where you talk about uh, the not, Joe Meek not stuff not
0: that did. We, we talked a little bit about the Joe Meek stuff, and we played a couple of examples of some of his early stuff. Um, we, we might have played like some Screaming Lord such Warlocks, some other uh, some other things like that that he had done. We we did like a, a couple of. I'm trying to think back because it was like episode three or something or two maybe Um, when we kind of talked about and Richie's a guy who was, of course, very young and had a huge session background Mm with all of these other folks um, going into. He probably had like 30 or 40 credits before he even got into Deep Purple, which is pretty incredible for somebody's age. I mean, yeah,
2: they were both extremely well seasoned and.
0: But there was that scene um, at the time, you know, it becomes very incestuous as we get into, I don't know how many albums we've covered at this point, but you start just seeing the same names again and again and again, and yeah, you can make yeah, these exactly. connections to, oh, this person was with them and they, they played with Deep Purple, or it's it's very easy to make those, you know, people say Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon well, with Deep Purple. like Sometimes my friends will try to, they know I do this podcast and they don't listen, but they'll just try to be like... Well, I I bet you can't connect Deep Purple. Somebody said the other day, I bet you can't connect Deep Purple to, I don't even remember what the name of the band was, but I just looked them up on Discogs and and I got like (laughs) two steps away from Deep Purple, basically.
2: It was Spooky Tooth, see? Yep, there you go, exactly. (laughs) You had mentioned Spooky Tooth. That was another, they were around still when I was a kid. I don't really know, I wasn't a huge fan or anything, but I I remember the name. I mean, it's a great name. (laughs) It is a great, it's a great name, great name for a band. So just my own personal history, um, flash forward, I saw the new Deep Purple in 1980. And then, when so, do you what, 80- what are your memories from that show? <clears throat> I got, I
0: gotta, uh, if you have any, like you said, you were I disappointed, obviously, um, but well.
2: yeah, well, the disappointment, yes, obviously. Um, I was right in the front, I was so excited. Uh, Rod Evans had the uh, purple lame spacesuit you guys talked about so he was he was dolled up in that yeah he, he looked, wasn't wearing the t-shirt the casual looked, look he looked like he'd borrowed like
0: the under portion of ace fraley's get up like he, he had yes. like just like that little like v-neck sort of thing and that and then he just but he it was like he got interrupted in stealing the spaceman's outfit and he could oh i can only get this i'll put this on when i'm in in concert
2: yes And I, you know, I thought, I was trying to figure out if the keyboard player was indeed John Lord, because he kind of had this, kind of was going for the look. Mm -hmm. He had the dark glasses and the, you know, the beard and, um, Mm -hmm. or the chops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the chops, I guess. But definitely the drummer was not Ian Pace. And in looking at the Mexico thing, the the Mexico concert that you guys posted, you know, Mm -hmm. it was really interesting to see all that again. And, uh... I, the other thing I remember is that I think you even posted the set list. But at some point, he, Rod Evans was like, "This this song is called Hash, <laughs> Hash." And I'm like, "Wow, they wrote a song about Hash!" You know, I thought, <laughs> "Oh, that's so cool." And then they went into Hush, and I knew Hush. And I was like, "Oh, okay, it's, it's yeah. not Hash, it's Hush." But anyway, and do you? <laughs> that's do you, about that's. I know that I, in Quebec, I know
0: they did it, but they said this this song is. Um, they played uh, Might Just Take Your Life and they said this is off of our album Burn and said "and Might Just Take Your Life which is where they got into some of the trouble there which is right. he had nothing to do with that album um, and they could have they could have worked this in such a way where it was like Rod Evans sings the classics from Mark 1 and probably had a pretty good run of it but yeah. um, when he starts
2: saying this is off of our album <laughs> that none of them had played <laughs> but on do you remember that, if exactly. they played Might Just Take Your Life? I don't. I knew that I must have known this song because I had Burn. Um, but you were probably I just processing it like at all at the moment. List. Like,
0: what's going on? Like, who are these guys? Like Yeah,
2: and I do remember there was a lot of pissed off people and people were yelling stuff at the stage and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the particulars. But it was very... The whole thing was disorganized and felt just really weird. And the audience was not um, was not really with them. I think a lot of people felt like i did i mean i think they really just didn't maybe the advertising wasn't really that um clear well and back then who, too
0: you just didn't know like deep purple's coming you you don't know that you, right. you don't you're not connected into the rumor mill or any if this was There's nowadays no everything no, would be yeah. out on twitter instantly you'd right. be like oh right, these guys right. are saying that that's <laughs> not really them but who, yeah who could have known yeah
2: so um I got. Here's another interesting story. This is now 1982. I'm I'm in the 10th grade. I go with the same guitar player. Uh, Rainbow came to Hawaii Ooh. again. I'm pretty sure that it was an, a last minute add on on their way to, to Asia. And they played also at the University of Hawaii in a different vi- venue. So you were was, like, I
0: fell for this once. <laughs> I'm not doing- you get up, you yeah, get to the show. I mean, no, no but this rainbow was there.
2: the real rainbow. This was, this was Joe Lynn Turner and Bobby Rondinelli and that whole crew. would have been great uh, if it was uh, like Craig, Craig Gruber and like some other <laughs> instrument and, and musicians nobody had ever heard of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. But again, it, was, uh, it had a sad ending. They played at this place called Andrew's Amphitheater, which is a tiny outdoor amphitheater on the, on the university campus uh, that uh, maybe holds a 1,000 people. It was small. And it was added at the last minute. It was like confusing. It was a festival thing, so I ran right up to the front. I saw the whole show. I was five feet from Richie Blackmore. But, and this is so hilarious, because by then we were doing local gigs around town, and we recognized the guy that was doing the back line, and he was the worst. He was he always had the worst gear. His stuff was a disaster. Um, and so here's Richie Blackmore having to use this guy's, and we we actually called him the rat because he looked like a drowned rat. He had long <laughs> scraggly hair. This is 1982, so there was still a kind of a lot of hippie stuff left over. And he was always, you know, wasted, stinky shirt you know t-shirt or whatever and um yeah and so Richie is fucking pissed he's first of all he's pissed uh, excuse my language can I say oh, the F word yeah. okay you can bleep me out <laughs> you should hear but, the guy we had on our last episode no. yeah <laughs> first of all the, the the show was in the middle of the day so there were mm. no lights it was there was no ambiance you, you know. didn't have the dusk clause for that one no no, no. dusk claws <laughs> And the amps are failing. It's this crappy little amphitheater. And Richie, after about 15 minutes, he comes on, they open with Spotlight Kid. I'm all super excited, because we were playing Spotlight Kid in our band at this point. He comes on, immediate problems with the amps. They're (laughs) they're dying, They're, they're not working right. He's not, you know, and I, we all know about Richie and his reputation or whatever. So he literally takes the guitar, throws it on the ground and walks off stage in the middle of the second or third tune you know he's not he's not jumping around he's dour and he just throws the guitar down and disappears for like 20 minutes and i think the band tried to play gamely on for a little while but then they left the stage too and finally he came back out and they they did the rest of the show and it was it was better but you know it was it was so anticlimactic Compared right, to like yeah. when you look at the famous, what is it, San Antonio? You know, mm, that, I think mm. that was like the peak of that band. That's an amazing show, and uh, they didn't have the backup singers. I think who was playing keyboards at that? Was that Don Airy already? I think it I was think it would Don have been Aerie. David Rosenthal at that point. Mm. But well, regardless, it was you know it was a great band. I got a Bobby Rondinelli drumstick because nice. he did his thing where he. He sma- in his solo, he like smashes the sticks off the cymbals and they go flying mm-hmm. out into the audience. But they had some lame tent overhang. So all the sticks he, he smashed off the cymbals hit the overhang and fell into the pit where the security was. Oh. So there was like all these Bobby Ronanelli drumsticks. <laughs> and some guy jumped over and started picking them up and handing them out. And I got a Bobby Ronanelli drumstick. Oh, nice. So, you know, that was pretty cool. So flash forward to 1984. I go to college. And my freshman year college, Perfect Strangers, comes out. I get the album, and I went to see that show. So that was cool because I got to see Mark too. Sure. Um, Did you guys see any of that? Those reunion shows. I don't know how old you are. No, we were a little, a little too young
0: for those. We see, we see some of the people posting ticket stubs from mm-hmm. playing. Right, where we
2: both grew up in Rhode Island, so we see like ticket stubs from. That might have been where I we saw it. We could have been Providence, at that show if we Providence a, Civic Center. Yeah, because exactly. I went to I went to college in, at uh, Brandeis University in Boston. So we would go to Worcester. Oh, did you Worcester go to Center. Did you go to
0: college with Greg? Is that how you know him? Or
2: no, oh. but yeah, I only found out later that he was there. He was there after I was there.
0: Yeah, crazy. Because our, our good friend who was on the Jesus Christ Superstar episode, he went to Brandeis and um, my buddy that I used to run the recording studio with went to Brandeis too, so I spent a lot
2: of time we in Waltham and on that, in that general Waltham. area. Waltham. It was definitely pretty blue-collar at that time, and so was Worcester and Providence Civic Center. Those were, those yeah. were great places to see concerts. A lot of concerts over the years at those places. Yeah, we, so, we
0: were pretty close to, to Worcester, but we, um, we're, we were just, you know, not, not quite dialed in enough until, until the late 80s, early 90s. But it was when we would have started kind of taking note of that stuff and probably still been too young to go to shows at that
2: point. Yeah. So um, I, 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 lo- I really like Perfect Strangers. I think it's a great record. Um, I think the songwriting is great. I think the, the way they came back and did it was great. But it was a little. The concert kind of started to get into a little bit of shtick, you know. Mm-hmm. With like they had these sort of glowing things in the background, and um, when Ritchie did uh, the Beethoven's Ninth thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. Some it just. I I was already moving out of my rock hard rock fandom, you know. As as I told Greg Renoff, the the, the turning point for me was. Was Ozzy Osbourne's first solo record because I had been a really big Sabbath fan, and mm-hmm. Sabbath when I first heard them, I don't know for you guys, but like when I, when my buddy gave me that album Paranoid, I was like, it was terrifying, you know, it was like yeah. scared the crap out of me that music. I mean, it was so dark and heavy and all that, and um, and then Ozzy, you know, then they they break up or whatever, and Ozzy Osbourne comes back with this really, you know,
1: going up the
2: rails, and I was just like. <laughs> That just really, I, to me, that set the stage for what rock was going to become, which was no more jams, you know. Also, I know everybody loves Randy Rhodes, and he was an amazing guitar player, but it's like Eddie Van Halen revolutionized guitar playing, and then everybody else kind of copied it, you know. I, that's my sort of opinion, but well, I, I just, it, it lost it for me in terms of what I wanted from music you know well kind of like time, you said was...
0: earlier about g- growing out of a phase of of a of a particular uh, style of music too um, that was kind of like we we came into it a little bit later and that was kind of the stuff the, the era like we we grew up with that early Aussie stuff and I, I must admit I didn't I, the later Aussie stuff, I I, I did kind of lose me a little bit, but we we just did an episode on the fir, um, on the on a Blizzard of Oz, which we was was monumental in our developing our hard rock sensibilities, and that's kind of where we actually branched off from from that early the f- first couple of early Ozzy albums to wanting to find out what happened before that, and then we kind of got stuck in the '70s for a while when discovering Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and all that sort of stuff, and then. I know John was a little bit more maybe in touch with what was going on in the mid to late eighties than I was. And I was definitely more of a kind of hippie Beatles kind of Beatles, black Sabbath, deep purple area. And John was kind of more into that, like kiss sort of stuff. And um, so we, we kind of both, but, but we both came to it from that early Aussie for,
2: uh, for one reason or another, but yeah, I mean, we all have our, our entry points, I guess. I mean, for me, I was just, I was I feel lucky that my entry point was made in Japan it set a set a very high bar um and uh you know I I ran with that that you know I was a little older so I got to sort of experience that that stuff as it was happening oh yeah um so then I go through 4 years of college and i get I got more into uh Well, my band and I got in college, I got to play in some amazing bands. I was in a pink Floyd tribute band and we, that again, this was before tribute bands. By this point I was really into Floyd and Genesis and King Crimson and yes, and gentle giant. And I was like a full on prog head. And I think that's what led me finally to jazz, which is more of the final frontier where like you really are improvising the whole time, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, so I sort of lost touch with deep purple at that point. Um, but I was, I was, uh, I kept playing. I was, a, I was a psychology major. Never thought I was going to be a musician professionally. And I, I ended up um, playing in these bands for you. I was also in a Zeppelin band, which was amazing. We would do long jams and, and our, my Pink Floyd band was called the Aesthetic Pig. And we would do <laughs> like full, we would do the whole dark side of the Moon. We would do all of Wish You Were Here. We would do Echo's part, you know, the first half and then in the spacey part in the middle, we would do Joe Cocker's Little Help from My Friends, I Want You, She's So Heavy, The Beatles, oh, wow. and um, Little Wing by Derek and the Dominoes, and then go back into Echoes. So that would be like one set. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah, that's a whole set. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was the funnest, funnest thing ever. So when I got done with college, I d- didn't really know what to do. Uh, I didn't want to continue with psychology. That was not my passion. And I started t- studying jazz with a fantastic teacher who was a berkeley you know berkeley college of music guy and decided i was gonna be a musician so i moved to la and i got connected eventually with this band called royal crown review which we got signed to warner brothers ted templeman produced our our two records and um so the next deep purple connection i have is it's now 1999 i've been out of the world of deep purple for a long long time um and uh I end up um, we we did a tour, a summer tour with the B fifty twos and the pretenders. And we got to do like, you know, the shed the sheds, uh, so like Great Woods, you know, Massachusetts. Oh yeah. Um all all of those like summer uh, outdoor venues. We did like thirty of them just and was an amazing opportunity to hang with Chrissy Hind every night. We were all friends, the B 52s. It was like, it was just an incredible, incredible uh, experience. So uh, that was summer of 1998. And we continued to do some spot shows here and there with those bands. Um, I think they were all related to Warner Brothers or on Warner Brothers. So that's how we got grouped you know, together with them. So, like, you know, these dinosaurs, not in a negative way, but these, these big bands would go out and then they would add a newer band that was on the roster to tour with them. So um, in 1999, we had the chance to play the Millennium Event for PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, hmm. which is, you know, powerful organization. By Millennium and Event, you mean like a, like a New Year's <laughs> Eve sort of? It wasn't on New Year's Eve. It, was, it happened in December, And this was, you know, Y2K was coming and all that kind of stuff. And um, we get there, and we played earlier in the day, but the headliner that night was Paul McCartney. uh, Uh, Because Linda had died the year, or just recently, I think she died in 1999. And so PETA, and of course they're very famous vegetarians, PETA honored Paul McCartney with... um, the, they made like a Linda McCartney, an annual Linda McCartney award. So Paul was the first recipient of it. Um, and so he had just released Run Devil Run with David Gilmore on it and and Ian Pace was playing on it. And that band played. They were like the headliner because we had also played that day. We got to hang on the side of the stage and I'd sent you a video clip of it, uh, which was their sound check in mm-hmm. the afternoon. And it was really an amazing event. I guess PETA is a very powerful organization because it was on the back lot at the Paramount Studios in L.A. Uh, they did a sit down dinner for five thousand people. What? So at like round ten, you know, ten top round tables. Sorry if that's. Oh, New York. That's all right. I'm just that's thinking I need to get some of that PETA money. Put together <laughs> it, a sit down dinner for five thousand. It is insane, and, and uh, all kinds of celebrities. And on the side of the stage, and so we had played earlier, but the B-52s played, the Pretenders played. They're all vegans, uh, those bands, oh, okay. which we learned when we were touring with them. And I was so pumped because, you know, like Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson were there. They were they were still canoeing with each other. Bill Maher. I just remember, like, all these, like, ridiculous, huge name celebs. And literally, while we were watching... Uh, the B-52s, David Gilmour was standing right next to me. And I'm just like, I had been in a Pink Floyd tribute band. I was the world's biggest fan. I was standing right next to him. But it's one of those things, you don't want to meet your heroes because I actually introduced myself. I was like, yeah, I'm a huge fan. And he just like, he didn't even speak to me. He just sort of like sniffed at Mm me. And and that was it. But Ian Pace was playing with Paul McCartney. And uh, so the tour manager or a production manager for the B-52s or the Pretenders. I knew him from the tour and asked if I could meet Ian. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet him, I think before they played, went to his dressing room and uh, we had a really nice conversation and, and he was just the nicest the nicest guy ever. So that that was sort of my first opportunity to actually meet, meet him and watch him play up close, you know, which was cool. It was very, very cool. Um, and he played that, you know, we were a bit snobbish because we were a band that was steeped in a lot of that early rock and roll music and really like were students of history. And I learned so much. That's kind of why I became a music historian is because of my involvement with that band. And like, you know, they were fiends for collecting. We, we would do tours across America and we would stop at every antique mall in like Omaha, which was like amazing because you would find all this incredible vintage stuff you know, we, we, we wore vintage suits. We had vintage instrument collections. I have a ton of vintage drums. I did a DVD about vintage drums. Um, you know, we, um, you know, tie bars, cufflinks, ties. I mean, all this incredible stuff that we were finding, this is before eBay. This is before all that stuff got sold to the Japanese or whatever. Mm Um, so anyway, you know, the, it, we we were sort of Paul McCartney's going to make a early rock album, and actually, in going back and watching that video a couple days ago, they did a damn good job. You know, I went and listened to some of the album on YouTube, and it sounds really good. And Ian Pace, man, he could have been a top notch studio drummer. I mean, he really could have. He he, the guy has skills. I if mean, he, I, if, he,
0: if he ever took a break from being in a band being,
2: <laughs> touring, <laughs> he he. Yeah, all, all the only thing he was missing was having the time. Well, yeah, and he did he did some very interesting studio work. I looked up his Wikipedia, you know, mm-hmm. cuz um just he worked with a variety of different artists, kind of like that in that Paul McCartney vein, which wasn't too out of his wheelhouse, but yeah, I mean, look was, at just recently he was
0: he did a track with DMX a few weeks ago and yeah. which which he had to feel, feel the need to people were so outraged that he would perform with a hip-hop artist that he had to do a video like explaining himself. It's like, don't explain yourself to these people. Do whatever you want to do. You're Ian Pace. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder how that collaboration came about. You know? Well, he, he said that uh, a friend of his asked him to do it, so he's like, "All right, I'll do, I'll do it." And then, of course, people are like, "Oh, he must need the money," and he's like, "He doesn't need the. Mo- How much money no. do you think he's getting for, for playing drum track to one song like this? And um, it's a very odd thing because it came out that morning and like nobody knew this was coming. Everyone's like, Ian Pace is playing on, and then DMX died later on that same day. It was that day. It was that day. It was so the video str- came out. It was so so wow. strange. I think it was That's... my it was either my daughter's birthday or like the day before or something. It was it was very odd. Um, but yeah, it was and you know, he's just asking all these questions cuz people are like, "Oh, did you play to a click track?" And he's like he, he he released a video and he's just very he says, "Of course I played to a click track." He's like, "That's how you yeah. make this kind of music." He's like um, you know, he was being very nice about answering these really Absurd questions, uh, but but you know he was saying I didn't receive any fee for this. Someone just asked me to do it, so I I did it. And, and he's like, it's it's he's not it's not a style of music I particularly like. It's not something I know much about. But I'm always up to try new things. And you pro- you know, yeah. knowing him, it probably took you know maybe
2: an hour or two of his time, and now and it was over. So well, and he's such a humble guy. I mean, it's uh you know. I'm trying to. I mean, I love those videos that he puts Mm -hmm. out. What is it? Drum tribe. Yeah, yeah. Drum tribe, and uh, I never knew what is it. What is he? What is the nickname? Everybody. Oh, the chief. The chief. The chief. I had no idea that that was. His nickname I, I don't think it was I think it just kind of was like he he whoever called
0: it the Ian Pace Drum Tribe and then he's like now he's the chief I mean maybe this is something that had been going on for a while behind the scenes I certainly had never heard of it until you he did this Okay, he yeah, started I, doing I, I these videos in like lockdown or whatever but
2: but it's it's so great because he has so much to share and he's always like the quiet you know mm-hmm. like if there he is the lukewarm water of deep purple you know in my, <laughs> I mean not that I don't mean that in a disparaging way it's just like how how he managed to survive all those egos mm-hmm. and all those addictions or you know, God only knows what else they were all up to at that time over the years, um, and still be there. And at, at he's, I think he's seventy now. It his playing is, is still fantastic. And he you had know, a, I was a little hit a stroke or something a few years
0: back, like twenty sixteen or yeah. something. Like didn't seem to I mean I I can't notice any any real change in his playing or anything.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me when Deep Purple took time off and then they came back and they did Perfect Strangers. And I was, his playing is very different on Perfect Strangers. You know, Mm -hmm. it's much more controlled. It's much more a typical 80s production in that he's, you know, you guys mentioned in your Burn podcast, but that he's, He's sticking to the parts, mm-hmm. and it's much more like just plain pocket drumming. Yeah, he's much he's more of a, doing. It's,
0: it's a more of a disciplined album from a production standpoint. They were trying yeah. to go for something a little bit more commercial, whether it was intentional or not. It's, yeah, it's not well, the same think, loose kind of feel you get on those seventies yeah. albums.
2: I mean, either he had aged significantly where he didn't feel the need to play the in the bombastic way anymore, or the producers, you know, were like, "No, this is how you have to make albums now, and you can't do that anymore." You know, which I think maybe. More, I'd love to ask him that question because it's such a difference in the style where he was so free and filling all the time. It almost didn't matter, you know, what kind of, what kind of, uh, what, what the album was, you know? So it's, it's interesting to me. Um, but, but when I, when I saw, um, I was a little disappointed by that, but, Mm -hmm. but then for example, uh, the John Lord tribute concert, what was that? 2015 or something? Uh, 2014, 15, 2014. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and they do burn and he's, yeah, just lays it down. And then there's footage of a clinic that he did, you know, on one of his drum tribe things. And he, there's like, can you play fireball? He's like, no problem. (laughs) And destroys it. And does, you know, I mean, his solo is incredible. So I, that's the thing I think, like I've seen Bill Ward play recently, and I mean he can't even play anymore, yeah. you know I mean, I think that's why he was replaced or quit or whatever on the last final tour, or a bunch of tours they did because of Ian pace's, and I mean obviously it's it's physiology, but he I think when you develop an economy of playing that way, jazz mm-hmm. you know jazz, some jazz training or whatever uh you can you you can maintain it for longer you know and he's he still sounds great the last time i saw deep purple um they they did a tour with orchestras which i think was around 2011 i had just moved to mm-hmm. new york and we live on the upper west side and they played at the beacon theater oh wow and uh which is a famous theater on the upper west side and my wife got me tickets for my birthday and i was a little
1: i don't know mm-hmm. i don't you
2: know cuz you don't you don't want to go see the band after they're, you know, it, when it's not the band you remember anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I'm one of those people, like, I don't really like to go revisit classic rock people, you know, a lot of them. But uh, And I also have to say, don't kill me, I just, I love Steve Morse, you know. Mm-hmm. I saw Steve Morse, I love the Dregs. I was a huge fan. I saw Steve Morse again in Hawaii, solo acoustic guitar opening up for the um, the One Night in San Francisco guitar trio John McLaughlin Paco De La Al Di Miola mm-hmm. uh, I got to see that trio and Steve Morse opening for them which was amazing wow. yeah but I can't I, I, I know the newer stuff I did check out some of the I, I haven't been in touch with you know the new albums they've done I'm, I'm sorry to say but Um, I I just need Richie Blackmore to play those guitar riffs of the old stuff, you know? Right, It's too different for me. And I I obviously don't want Steve Morse to try to be Richie Blackmore, but but that said, it was still a great concert. I mean, they played with an orchestra and they did uh, Woman from Tokyo, which I guess they do a lot, which is awesome Mm -hmm. because they never got to do that. And we need to talk about who do we think we are because it's probably my (laughs) favorite Deep Purple Studio record, that or Fireball burn is up there. There's so many, but you know, it never gets its props. But I'm glad they're doing women from Tokyo. That was awesome to see. They did a killer version of Black Knight. Um, you know, they did they did some some really great stuff and and it was great. I mean, they're all great musicians. So, I I feel fortunate I got to see them at that time. Have you guys seen them recently or ever or
0: Well, yeah, it was the last show I saw before um, October ref- before uh, covid hit and John Oh wow John saw them right before I I think John John you saw some other shows after mm-hmm. that right that was my last show that I've been to
1: Yeah no I saw I saw some other bands after that but not I I can't remember I got more into live music in the past couple of years than I have been in a while and then
2: <laughs> and I got shut
1: down.
2: Yeah, Man, so right. much for that. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. You guys asked a question on Twitter about um, the album. What's next? Is that what it's called? What uh, comes now? Oh, Deep purple album. Oh,
0: what? Ne- what? What? Ne- what? No, I can't think. What? What, <laughs> yeah. what next? Yeah,
2: what next? <laughs> but and you say, well, well, oh, you know, what's your favorite track off this record? Right, you guys put that on your Twitter page from various. Now, albums. now what? I'm sorry. I'm like, now what? what? Now what?
0: <laughs> you, get, you threw me off with of what's next? What? Who do we think we are? <laughs> it's not who's
2: next. Um, everyone's uh, everyone's yelling anyway, at their podcast now. A bunch of now. people. Uh, there was one song that kept coming up, and I went and checked it out, and it was a great. It was really good, man. It was yeah, that,
0: that's kind of heralded as being one of which the I really liked. That's the first album where Ezrin. Uh, started producing them and a lot of I mean, you, you get a lot of varying opinions but it's, it seems to be the the consensus from a lot of people that that was the better of the last three albums but it's also the album that's now uh, you know eight years old so people have a little more time with it and the new album is there's always people that just love everything they put out and then there's the people that say oh, I don't like it because it's new and right. everything has to be a certain number of years old and <laughs> in 20 years all these albums are going to be regarded as classics who knows
2: yeah good point good point
0: um but yeah we haven't gotten too much into we haven't covered anything later than perfect strangers from deep purple on the show because we're doing i don't feel so bad we're doing a (laughs) a kind of quasi chronological progression with it all um so it's not because we could have just done all the deep purple albums and been done with it, but there's so much related to those side projects and everything that we just decide to kind of yeah. swirl around taking whatever subject comes to mind for that week and talking about it. So we just did perfect strangers a couple months ago. Um, after being yelled at by our listeners for the better part of two years and, uh, yeah, well, at least we'll, your we'll,
2: listeners are, you know,
0: and then we, listening. Kinda, and then we kind of get into, I mean, we're, we're, John stuck with them, I think, through like House of Blue Light, um, um Slaves and Masters, uh, Battle Rages On. He's he he has a little bit more knowledge about that era than I do. Um I I had a pretty good connection to Perfect Strangers, but after that, that little any anything <clears throat> anything from the uh late 80s through the um early 90s, I I was a little bit checked out. So it's kind of I've heard it all, but it's it's going to be a little bit more newer territory for me anyway. Can
2: you clear up, when Gillen left again, did they, um, was that when Jolene Turner came in?
0: Yes. Yeah, he
2: he was on Slave, and Slaves and did Masters. Did he do albums or just tour
0: or? Just, uh, he did the one album, the Slaves and Masters, and then did a tour. And then the record company. I think it was, I think it uh, I think it was for the twenty-fifth anniversary. They're like, We gotta have Ian Gillen back. So they coaxed Gillen back, pissed really pissed Blackmore off. They tried to make it work and it just fell apart after that. But
2: Yeah. Well, it's not, you know, I mean in some ways we're lucky that Ian Gillen's solo stuff never really panned out to anything commercially successful because that always meant, you know, he would be enticed back to come back to Deep Purple.
0: Yeah, he always he always seemed to come back. And I, I think it was just kind of a, probably pretty evident from the get go and perfect strangers and when they got back together, there was a little honeymoon period there. Then it fell back into its old the old problems. And I think it was always gonna be this power struggle between Richie and 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 Ian and one of them would have to go, uh, eventually, and Blackmore decided it would be him. And I think he was just kind of annoyed by the whole situation. I think they both had good reason to be annoyed by the situation and I mean, obviously, people get really like, oh, they should get Richie back in the band. It's never going to happen, and no. if it did, it would be a disaster. And they've they've been happily pumping out albums for 25 years I now. Know. I'm um, happy for them with with no drama in the band. So exactly, whether I don't think it was all Richie's fault, and I don't think it was all Ian Gillen's fault, but clearly the two of them were not a good fit. And um, I mean, you just see them if you watch the the. The later concert like the they they recorded the video for um what is it uh come hell or high water is like richie's second to last show or something with the band and you just see the tension and the they're all up there and they're performing and richie's doing his thing and they're you could just sense the tension and then you just go from what i saw him whatever a year or Ago, they they are you know, so happy they're, on stage. Yeah, they're, they're just they're yeah. laughing and having a great time. Still, so it's like clearly it was the right move. And, and Richie's happy as could be too. He's sitting there, yeah. he's playing his absolutely playing his Renaissance music and loving it. And smaller venues, and he they everyone seems really happy. So that's all. Yeah, that and he had a
2: he had a little rainbow reunion that yep. I saw. I watched a little bit of it on YouTube. I and guess it's kind of like the, some European shows.
0: Yeah, it's almost like the same. It's all Blackmore's night. They just kind of change their clothes. And now they're now they're Rainbow. And well, he found he a up, singer that brings out Ronnie Romero. Like Dio. Yeah, he does. He does a great job of all the all the Rainbow stuff. Yeah, um, great
2: singer. Yeah, I have a friend. I guess doesn't Blackmore live on Long Island? Or did he? Or the Connecticut? So, somewhere around or, there. Okay. Yeah, because well, I have a friend who's a drummer on Long Island who played with Blackmore for a while. This is before Blackmore's night. I, I, oh, I okay. guess he was just doing Blackmore solo stuff. And. Uh, I asked him... Oh, I said, oh, I'm a huge Deep Purple fan. What was it like? Because, you know, you hear a lot of Mm -hmm. stories about Richie Blackmore, obviously, as an employer or as, you know... I mean, those stories about... uh, I went and checked out a couple ronnie james dio interviews and he was talking about what they did to tony Carey and cozy pommy it's just like it's awful it's i mean i was in a i was in a band that was like a street gang you know it was it was (laughs) like we three of the guys in the like i was you know refined i had a college degree and a good education three of the guys in the band never graduated from high school Mm-hmm. Uh, not that that made them bad people or less of musicians or anything like that, but it was just, we were coming from very different places. And I joined the band. They'd already been going for five years. And so I was like the new guy and there was like hazing, you know, mm-hmm. so I can only imagine Tony Carey who was probably a teenager still, you know, at that time he was just, just getting started. And here he's dealing with Richie and cozy who are like veterans of the business and, I mean but they did some setting fire to his room and locking him yes. in there like it's, I, I was mean some just of these astounded. pranks people could
0: have died you know it's like how funny yeah. would it have been if oh we killed our
2: keyboard player maybe oh, yeah. hey, that prank went a little too far but you know that that like I think things I mean that was wild days I I know when I joined Royal Crown Review and we were doing van tours across texas driving like 90 miles an hour and half the guy one guy's had an unlicensed gun in the car (laughs) and another guy had like tons of weed you know and here we are like with california plates going like 100 miles an hour through texas everything's probably going to be fine yeah totally just (laughs) i mean the amount number of times i could have died on the road is (laughs) so what did your friend have to say about working with richie Well, I never got to, I never, we never had the conversation, which really pissed me off because then he ended up moving or something Uh, like that. So I didn't, I never got the goods, but I can imagine, I can imagine. I also (laughs) ran into JoLynn Turner. Um, Our band was kind of on top of the world in like 98, 99. And we did not only a lot of concerts and touring and working with, you know, bands like B52s and the Pretenders and stuff. But we also did a lot of high-end corporate events. And we did this corporate Christmas party in New York. And the um the other band, we were like we were this the, you know everybody wanted us at their corporate party because we were kind of the hot thing and we were a swing band and swing was having this resurgence. But the, there was another band and it was like a dyed in the Wool hardcore New York like Party band kind of thing, and Joe Lynn Turner was was singing with them. Mm-hmm. They were amazing, like yeah. ridiculous. I mean, the guy is an incredible singer. So I talked with him a little bit about having seen him in 1982. Now it's 1990, you know, whatever. I guess 98, 99. And um, anyway, so you know, nothing earth shattering, but just had a, having a chance to meet some of these people that I saw as a starstruck 14 year old is pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. Him. Nice. When I when I um, when I saw Deep Purple at the Beacon, I also I I had known a guy that had played with Ian Gillen's solo band, and he hooked me up with their management, and I was able to get backstage at that show. Oh, cool! Uh, and I brought Ian a copy of one of my books, which is all about rhythm and blues drumming. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he ever read it, but that's where I got that picture that's on the on the podcast. So I was able to give him one of my historical books, and again, just tell him how much. meant to me and you know all of that kind of stuff so um and here's one more interesting little tidbit uh i have a jazz trio that i've been working with here in new york for quite a while and it's pretty eclectic and we are doing a cover of smoke on the water on our new record and it's you i'll send it to you guys when when it's mixed um you probably won't even recognize that it was smoke on the water because it's it's in three four time and it's it's very up tempo. Oh, cool! And it's it's very jazzy, but it's cool. You'll you'll dig it. And I never, I I mean, Smoke on the Water is probably you know my least listened to Deep Purple song, just because I got sick of it from hearing me in Japan and all from being on the radio, and then everyone making fun of it. Basically, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, it's it's a great song, but. Yeah, it's like, it's it it's not be my like, first choice of a of Deep Purple song to listen to. No, and it's almost I'm, like a punchline in, in some cases. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of become like Free Bird, which sucks because it's it's an amazing song. And right. the arrangement on Main uh, Japan is incredible. Um, so I never thought I would ever play Smoke on the Water, let alone in this jazz trio. But what was funny is we we did a corporate event and the guitar player showed up and he just started – started riffing on it and we just kind of went into it and we ended up that was sort of our first song that we played at this corporate event but again very jazzy kind of we did it almost as a joke and then i thought this is a really cool arrangement so let's record this and then we we, we got serious about it sometimes so, it works and, uh, yeah yeah it's almost like if john scofield played Smoke on the water. That's kind of what it would sound like. I don't know if you guys are into John yeah, Schofield. I love John Scofield.
0: I would love to hear that. When you get it, we'll have to. Yeah. We'll
2: definitely. link to it on
0: the socials or wherever you
2: decide and to do And you post can it. play it on your show. You can play it on YouTube. I will be thrilled. I will not bust you for licensing. Great. We've got a new opening for the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know. You'll have to make that judgment when you see it, but it's cool. It's, it's, it's actually, I'm really, really stoked about it. So I guess for me, maybe that ties up. The Deep Purple, uh my deep purple connections. I there are yeah. probably many more that I haven't mentioned. But uh it's funny because from the time I was nine years old and got turned on to hard rock and now I'm 54, Deep Purple is still there. And I'm I'm amazed that Ian Pace is still there. I mean, he's still mm. playing, he's still active. I don't think you can say that for almost anybody, maybe except Charlie Watts, you know, from that era of of especially those great British bands. I mean, they're either dead or retired or whatever.
0: You know, we, we talk about it all the time on the show, but about you know how Perfect Strangers came out, and it was like, um, and you know, the um, John always brings up that was it the Steel Wheelchairs tour when the, when when Rolling Stones got back to or not the oh, Steel back together, Wheels, yeah. they were <laughs> still around, but um, yeah. they called the Steel Wheelchairs, and, and Deep Purple was like laughable that in, in Perfect Strangers came out, these guys um, dinosaurs, Ian Gillen, he's 39. How can, can you believe it? These guys are still trying to make this work. It's, it's sad. Look at all these geriatric patients up there on stage. Mad magazine would have pictures of them with like, you know, wheelchairs with an IV playing their guitars and things. Were were you, are you into Mad?
2: Yeah, I was. I remember too. Was- I had a. He, my dad was into Mad, yeah. and he got me into Mad. I started buying Mads in 1975. Oh wow! I got a stack I, of them in
0: the other room over yeah, here. Yeah,
2: I loved Mad. But
0: I, that, that was, was like kind movie. of my first exposure. I remember seeing. I can remember. I remember like a. I don't know who the artist was, but doing this. The old rockers playing, yeah. and this was. 30 years ago. still <laughs> so going. that was 30 years ago. Me and yeah, Gillen it's... just turned 75 and they were making know, fun of him when he was 39 trying
2: to do this. They're making great music, man. <laughs> the thing that, to to, to switch things up, because I have some questions for you guys if you don't mind my asking or sure. I have some things I'm hoping to maybe get confirmed. The first, first of all, the fact that he's saying all that Jesus Christ Superstar stuff in like one afternoon, yeah, it blows me away. And and po- you were dead on in your podcast that like that set the standard for what every how everybody sings Jesus like yeah, there's f- no other way later, to sing yeah. Jesus, you know, and and I'm you you know Ted Neely, yeah you guys you guys have been we're, we're generous with him <laughs> but I would like to hear I'm 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 sure that he grew into it, but yeah, he did
0: movie, I I think the movie is I think overall the movie the sound. Quality on the movie. Yes. I think it's a very well done visual, but the I think a the, lot of the production of the sound were yeah. overdubbed in very
2: strange ways, and that did not help no. at all. It did no. not help uh, him. I think Carl um, Anderson, on the other hand, yeah. rose above. I mean, the Judas Judas is actually maybe even a harder role to sing than Jesus, unless you're Ian Gillen, and then you set this same <laughs> bar that everybody else, all the other Jesuses, have to to uh, to match up to but that 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 alone that just blows my mind and if you think about the output of bands at that time you know that that these guys were on the road like richie i, don't know, I was watching some richie interviews 11 months of the year mm-hmm. and they're putting out a new album every year and you know they're they're getting hepatitis and and they're probably drinking and drugging it up pretty good all along the way. You know, in Royal Crown Review, we did something like that. I joined the band in 94. We got signed to Warners in 95. And between, we put out an album every year, 96, 7, 8, 9. We did four albums in four years, which Mm -hmm. doesn't sound like that big a deal, but we were also on the road like nine months of every one of those years. Yeah, it's crazy. So I've been on that and, and, you know, Richie's always talking about manage the managers came in, you know, <laughs> and it's true because they are, they want to book you cause they're making money. So yeah. they just keep booking you and you're like, everybody's screaming, we need some time off and, you know, yeah, and how nice. you write. But I think that, that is one of the things that why bands that are on the road so much, their, their chops are up, their road muscle is up and they're just in this constant creative zone, Um, And that's why, you know, so many of those bands at that time made so much great music as opposed to, you know, the steely danification of the recording process. Really, the Beatles were the first to, like, spend months making a record, you know. I mean, thankfully they did because it changed recording for everybody, but it set a different kind of a standard that um, was, uh, you know, just bands make music differently and and what we were saying about how everything has to be perfect yeah um, and obviously now the era that we're in is just a totally different ball game but the spontaneity um, is incredible sorry more emergency vehicles going by outside
0: I can't tell if it's an ice cream truck or an ambulance it's,
2: it's got a very <laughs> odd tone to it <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it's a, it's definitely not an ice cream truck <laughs> um, okay so questions yes questions since we were talking about Burn, um, the in the Bach section, right, mm-hmm. at the end of the keyboard solo, my question is, isn't there, isn't, was this the album that John Lord started to play with synthesizers? Because isn't there a like a Moog part? It was, it's not in the main keyboard solo part. It was in one of the other, yeah. I think Richie... Richie's part—you could hear it in the background, and it doesn't sound like a Hammond organ at all. I mean, I know you could do a lot of stuff with a Hammond, but I know he was using like an Odyssey
0: before. I want to say maybe, and I'm sure our our listeners are way smarter than us, so you should probably ask them, right? Which is why Um, I'm asking questions. But I know he had like an Odyssey that he maybe brought out. I want to say in like Fireball. He played. He started playing around a little bit with stuff maybe okay. maybe around that era i don't think there was anything on in rock and then on like who do you think, think who do we think we are uh, rap at blue he's got yes. some crazy thing going on there yes. so he started to get really into it um i think it, it he started to play around with it a little bit and then was full on into it um probably the bulk of the time he was doing it he wasn't even in deep purple um and then when by the time he came back it was more pardon the expression, but more cheesy side, kind of 80s synthesizer stuff. But I think he always had something going on there. But I, I'm not 100% sure. I'd like to know more about the gear, that, the history of the gear, because I just don't know.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um, God, hearing those those burn tracks was just so cool. And uh, um, I remember if I have any other questions, because I just listened to that podcast this morning, but it was listening to Glenn Hughes' bass part. Was he mm. using a Rickenbacker? Do you know? Was he a Rickenbacker guy? It sounded like a Rickenbacker, I like think a very wire kind of sound. Yeah, from what I understand, he was using a Rickenbacker at
0: like Richie's request. I think he was more of a Fender guy. Um, in a California jam, he's pl- he's playing a Fender. So I, th- I oh, think okay. maybe for the records, uh, Richie was pushing him more towards the the Rick, but I'm 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 not a hundred percent sure on that either. But yeah, what a real like
2: just snarling kind of. Ugly Sadies man, just yeah, ugly in the best possible way. I mean, and he's just on one note. And, and you really know. don't hear much of it on the in the mixed song. No. But
0: that's the yeah. kind of beauty of it, which you know way better than we even do. Is you know, you listen to isolated tracks in in, in the studio. In order to serve the song
2: by themselves, they don't always sound that great. And as a listener, I had really pretty much dissected that whole song. But when I heard the bass today, I realized I had never bothered to listen to the bass part at all. So it
0: it it doesn't. It's it's there, and it's it's contributing a lot more than you realize. But it doesn't jump out in the mix particularly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So another another question. the butterfly ball thing, I had not heard of that at all. And I'm surprised because that would be the kind of thing that I would have known about at the time or I would have researched or would have dug into. Uh, what what knocks me out about, and I, I didn't listen to the studio album, although I think I probably should. I think I'd like the studio record. The live album is where the live concert movie is, it, you know. <laughs> the audio is
0: great. The video yeah. is questionable. Yeah. yeah,
2: I mean, the ballet dancers and the very bizarre yeah (laughs) it's bizarre (laughs) and sad because it is great music so why did you have to like i guess it's one of those things where like the movie director's vision he convinced glover you know well i don't think i I don't think there was any
0: conversation at all glover said he was in tears in the in the theater watching this for the first time he had no idea that any of this was going to happen uh, and just was there with his family and friends just like shrinking into his seat wanting to oh wanting well, okay so disappear. he wasn't without thrilled about this. it no yeah. and, and the thing i've lobbied for for years is I, w- I would pay top dollar to have just a video of that concert with all that right. other stuff stripped out and it's exactly. funny as it is it's just like you want to like like, can I move the curtains? Is there something going on behind that? Is there an actual concert? Because the performances on that show are just sensational.
2: Yeah, and so my big question, which I haven't listened to to your Butterfly Ball podcasts, although I, I'm sure I'll get around to it eventually, but how, you know, Glover was kicked out of Deep Purple unceremoniously in 73, right? I mean, he he was fired mm-hmm. and was just dis- distraught about it from the interviews I've seen or what I've read about it. Yet, you know, here it's what, seventy-five, two years later, he's able to corral, you know, Gillen, mm-hmm. Glenn Hughes, Coverdale, Dio, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like all his old bandmates are, are involved. John Lord John that? Lord was in the live yeah, John John Lord. The live part, yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, and and for s- material that it's cool, but like It's, you know, the subject matter is a little wacky, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this like teddy bear's picnic kind of thing (laughs) with all these characters. Um, So how, you know, how did he manage
1: that?
0: I mean, I I think for the most part, he kind of went into A&R for for Purple Records and was a big producer for, he had really worked on his producing for a couple of years. So he had developed these relationships with a lot of these people. And um I think through still being related to Purple Records, it's weird, even though he's fired from Deep Purple, is still kind of a um kind of tied together with them. So and he moved he, into the front office, so to speak. Yeah. I I mean I guess so. And and really worked on his production chops and, produced and boy some did he great get stuff. that together,
2: man. Yeah. I mean he so, became a great producer all well, he produced all those Rainbow albums, right? The the uh the, Turner stuff. Yep, the, once the stuff, he rejoined the band. Once he
0: rejoined and um He produced Coverdale's first couple of solo albums. He produced all this stuff. So I think he had this really great relationship with all those guys, even though they were in the band after he left and all that. It seemed to me anyway, from what I've read, that it was uh, this, um, you know, like we talked about this, that scene that was happening around that time, everyone kind of knew each other. And it's just like, you're calling up your buddy to, Hey, come sing a track on the song. If you watch Coverdale on the live concert he comes out he's like hey how's everybody doing and then he just he's got the lyrics he's printed the he lyrics, doesn't have any idea what the words are he sings them and then he just kind of goes like this he just gives him a little salute right. and then walks off stage yeah. um,
2: it's Be- very because
0: I mean wh-
2: what was the I know that I-, I had heard once and maybe I'm wrong that Ian Gilling claims that he never ever listened to any of those albums that, that those guys did uh, Yeah, Burn and and uh, Stormbringer and That's what he still says, I think. But Ozzy says the exact
0: same thing. I never listened to any of the Black Sabbath stuff after I left. To me, it was always the four of us that were the, you know, I I don't know. (laughs) Pretty good Ozzy (laughs) impersonation. That's like my first (laughs) time ever. That's a test drive right there. Um, But to me, it seems like that's. It kind of reminds actually when I was talking to Greg Renoff about it. I I remember seeing this quote from Eddie Van Halen about, he's like, I don't listen to music.
2: Right, right.
0: And I asked him about that, and his take on it was kind of like, "Well, I think he says that because he doesn't want anyone to say like, what do you think of this person? What do you think of that person?'" Uh, Knowing right. he's a living legend, you you wouldn't want him to say like, "Well, I'm not. I don't care for that, or I don't listen to that," because it could. He he didn't want any of that drama, any of the gossip. So he just was like, right. I, "I don't. I haven't listened to anything since 1984 or whatever." Right. Like, um. And I kind of get the sense it kind of be the same thing there. Is like he has to have heard some of it at some point, even trying to avoid it, how could you? So maybe it's just kind of his way of saying, getting interviewers offers back to be like, we want to hear what you you think about the Burn album or the whatever. That way he can just say, I've never heard it and move on. That's
2: actually, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. Because, I mean, one can only imagine, like, what was the backstage vibe, you know, with, with you know, uh, Gillen there at the show and, and Coverdale and Hughes, you know. Yeah. I mean, you just... You you don't ever think of them being in the same room. <laughs>
0: right, know. right. And to think they were all like on stage at the same time, you covered Ale Hughes. I don't think Ian Gillen came back for like the big encore, but all of those right. guys. And DL would have been there, but Richie wouldn't let him.
2: <laughs> so. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and when you listen to, you know, the, the, I guess that was the single, the, the sort of the uh, all you need is love, yep. you know, Uh, Love is All, right? Isn't that what it's called? (laughs) It just
0: changed the words. It's like,
2: oh, yeah. But it's got the same kind of shuffling beat. I mean, it's very similar. But uh, when you listen to Dio, his voice is even higher than it was in the whole rest of his career. It's like, you know, it's like listening to Robert Plant in 69. His voice is so pristine. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Like, so much control of it. And Dio's voice is crazy. It's so high. Yeah, he steals um, the show on that album for sure. Yeah, yeah. But what's also interesting is that the song that Ian Gillen sings is very low key. Like he's, it's mm-hmm. like it's almost maudlin. You know, he's not. Uh, there's no opportunity for him to scream or do any of his kind of theatrics. That and that's yeah, own that's own the voice. first
0: uh, Dio track on the album that he sings, and uh, he he uh, and John Lawton I think takes the other ones, but. Yeah, he does it very, very similar to the way Dio does it too. And and they both are very understated on that song. And that's what the song requires and they do a great right? job.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's there for the music, you know. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm trying to think if I have any other questions. I have, I know I'm going to. Hang up and, and, and <laughs> well, have ten well, thousand of them. But.
0: Yeah, we'll have to. We, we can answer them on Twitter. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> or, exactly.
0: Or wherever. But um, we really appreciate you stopping by the show and talking about your history with the band and Ian Pace and all these great stories. And um, uh, if, if if folks are looking to find more out about you and your podcast and all that sort of stuff, where's the best place to go to find more about Daniel Glass?
2: Um, probably my website, which isn't very exciting right now because it doesn't have any gigs on it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the podcast, you can find all the podcast episodes. I have a lot of stuff about um, uh, not only drum drummers, but about music and music history in general. I'm really into the evolution of music. I actually have uh, a DVD called The Century Project, which looks at uh, 100 years of the evolution of American popular music. Awesome. Um, and I, that, talks about the, the drummer's perspective. Cause the drum set is very interesting. I mean, we haven't really talked at all about drum or just music history, but the drum set as an instrument is, has a fascinating history. It, it basically came together because they were, you know, you had three members of a marching band, uh, three, three distinct drummers, bass drum, snare drum and cymbal mm-hmm. player. I mean, you might've had multiples of those and that was a military tradition. But after the Civil War, there were a lot of musicians because so many um, mili- there was, had been so much military activity, and of course, musicians were the ones that were the communicators. There were no walkie-talkies or anything mm-hmm. like that, obviously. So the the drum calls would tell people when to get up and when to charge, and you know that's how people knew. And the bugles and the fifes. So there were a ton of musicians, and um, because the country was united. Now, um, commerce, entertainment, these kinds of things could evolve. And so that's when, you know, Minstrel Z became popular and traveling circus shows and vaudeville started to emerge. Um, and so, you know, was sort of like, well, we don't have the budget for three guys, but we could hire one if we can figure out a way to put together the drums into a unit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or we have no room in the orchestra pit at the vaudeville theater. So the drum set really came into being, the bass drum pedal, very, very primitive versions of it were created around the time of the Civil War, even a little earlier. And, um, and so that's where the story of the drum set really begins. Also the fact that slaves were freed, theoretically, I mean, at the end of the Civil War, you know, at least on paper, mm-hmm. um, allowed black people to start to participate in American culture. On a, and it took another 30 years until you have ragtime. But that you know, African-American approach to rhythm is a big part of what makes the drum set special and unique. Obviously, all of it kind of coming together in New Orleans when jazz with jazz. But it's a really wonderful story. And the evolution of the gear itself is also really fascinating because um, the different parts of the drum set come from different immigrant groups that came to the US. Um, so for example, Tom Tom's, originally of chinese origin uh they had temple blocks on the drum set which by the way i think in pace is playing on uh uh what is it you fool no one no 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 the shield going way back oh Oh, yeah. it's either an african slit drum that was another question i had if anybody knew that it's either an african slit drum or it's temple blocks oh um but that's That's really cool. But that was a standard part of every drum set. And certainly in his time as a young man, they would have had, you know, temple blocks. Chinese, China symbols, right? The upside down Mm -hmm. symbols. Those are Chinese origin. And of course the Zildjian family came from, you know, Turkey and Peisty symbols that Bonham and Pace uses are, are originally European symbol technology. They're still made in, you know, the company's Swiss. So you have all of these different pieces coming together to create the drum set. And, um, when did the hi-hat show up? You know, that showed up, uh, in the early thirties. Um, we first start hearing that in like 1930 that, you know, instead of having to choke a symbol, which is what they did in the twenties, needed two hands to do that. So then they had these little devices they would hold that had two symbols and they'd hit them with a stick, two symbols. You hear that on certain records. And then they were like, well, we have this One foot pedal, let's add another foot pedal, you know? Hmm. So then they started, that was called a low boy. It was down on the floor, like the bass drum pedal. And you would clop two cymbals together to sort of the chick to the boom of the bass drum, boom, chick, boom, chick. And then very, it's all happened like in a short amount of time, but then they said, well, why don't we raise it up? Then you could play it with your hands and with your foot. So, you know, these, these stories are very interesting and how Gene Krupa fits in and just how important he was. People know his name, but they don't really realize that he was like, I mean, the the world that the modern drummer exists in would not be what it is without Gene Krupa um, on so many levels. He was like the first true superstar of the drums and um, was responsible for, for example, uh, Tom Toms being you you could tune the top and bottom head. Prior to that, they were the original Chinese design where the heads were tacked on with little nails, you Mm -hmm. know, decorative nails. Couldn't tune it. you broke it. You were SOL. You'd have to. Um, change the head or get another drum or whatever, uh, but it was not easy to obviously change those heads. So yeah. it's a fascinating story. And when the ride cymbal came in, which wasn't until bebop, and the only reason it came in is because the cymbal tilter was invented. So for the first time, they could tilt the cymbal towards the drummer so mm-hmm. that they could keep time on the cymbal, and they use bigger cymbals. Um, so very interesting. And it's a I take it all the way up to Ringo because. By the time we get to Ringo, the drum set is the blueprint that really it still is today. Uh, the modern design, the modern way it's used. And one thing that, it, that Ringo did on Ed Sullivan was he played match grip, which was mm-hmm. very unusual for the time. The, every drummer, you know, there was no other way to play except the traditional grip. Mm-hmm. And when Ringo, you know, that had caused such a sea change that literally that became the way that drummers played overnight because of Ringo. <laughs> And because of the baby boom generation who were all primed and ready to, you know, become the Beatles, to to be self, um, uh, you know, singer-songwriters, essentially. That was also something that wasn't done very much before. Right, right. Buddy Holly, Sam Cooke, you can find a few examples of people that wrote their own songs, performed their own songs, um, you know, produced, were in charge of their career. Normally, it was like you had musicians you had the artist and you had a producer and you know those three things were independent jobs and a songwriter songwriters would they were all independent and the idea of somebody writing their own songs was <laughs> it just seems, it seems so obvious now like you just do it yourself but yeah it's it it was just wasn't the standard just wasn't standard because the songwriters could write the hell out of a song and the musicians could in, you know, in a three hour session do three tunes very Mm -hmm. well, which as we know, when rock musicians came up, I mean, the wrecking crew played on all the, you know, all these albums that are credited to the band who never really played on it. Um, So, I mean, it again, wasn't uh, the Beatles just changed everything. And, but anyway, I I, I feel like I'm into this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel feel like I've learned more about the the, like the the history of the drum set in the past few minutes than I ever ever thought to to look into It it makes so sense. (laughs) And when you when you all I could think of when you were saying that is like how it must have seemed almost comical. At a, early on when you see this one guy playing three different things he looks ridiculous he's fitting this with his foot and he's doing you know what I mean like and now it, but it's the, like the coolest thing in the world now and everybody does it and wouldn't think of doing it any other way but the way that you described it it makes perfect sense it's fascinating that it, it goes from wartime to, um, to, to up, right up to Ringo all those changes that happen it's pretty crazy
2: yeah it's an amazing story um, that that sorry that one hundred year path that winds its way along. I'd be happy to send you a copy if you're interested. Um, It'd be great. Yeah. I'd love to love to check it out. It's even if you're not a drummer, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of cool history. Um, uh, I am certainly not thing, a drummer. I'll, so <laughs> <laughs> one other thing I'll say about Ian Pace's gear that I learned from one of his Drum Tribe videos where he does his stage, you know, he shows you his stage kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that he's basically playing a four-piece kit, which is kick, mm-hmm. snare, one rack, and one floor. But all the rest, he says, is almost even cosmetic, and it's there just you know for effect. But that shows his old-school mm-hmm. nature. And the reason why is because his ride cymbal is very low, so he can't have two toms mounted on top of the bass drum, right. uh, because that's another old-school kind of... Know, tradition. fact that he plays 14 by 26 inch bass drum, huge bass drum, swing era right there. Nothing, no muffling. One of the things about Ian Pace too, that I, I really forgot to mention is his incredible bass drum ability. He mm-hmm. was, he has, um, as opposed to a lot of those bands, as opposed to, I would say, rock drumming in general, where the bass drum is kind of at least at that time was almost more of an afterthought coming from jazz where it was a soft because they had those huge bass drums, you know, back in the twenties when there was no amplification, there was no um there was no microphones, you know. So the drummer, if we think drummers get yelled at now for playing too loud, imagine how it was in the twenties when you had like a clarinet and a cornet and a an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. or a banjo and an upright bass or a tuba. With no amplification. And here you have a 28-inch bass drum and the same snare drum we have today. So, you know, but that was the that was the standard. And all those early rock guys, again from Gene Krupa, were like playing these these open things. But but the swing guys played the bass drum very quietly. You know, the bass drum was underneath. They played what was called a four on the floor feel. They did what was called feathering the bass drum. So when the rockers showed up, you know, now they're hitting that bass drum solidly. Um But a lot of them, you know, you listen to to the way his Ludwigs were recorded and the way that that bass drum just pops. (laughs) Listening to the burn thing, he's got a super active foot, you know, much more than a lot of other drummers. It's like, you know, that's hard. That's really hard to do at those tempos, at that volume. You listen to Made in Japan, he does that thing with his bass drum where he speeds up, and then, I mean there's no one in that rock world that could play the bass drum as fast as that one, a single bass drum, hmm. which is again, why I think he doesn't use the double pedal very much because he doesn't, you know, buddy Rich would always say, why do I always, why do I need two bass drums? I could do everything I need to on one bass drum. Right. He also had a ridiculous foot. Um, so I think, you know, something else that really sets Ian pace apart in addition to his jazz chops, his economy of playing um, his, Incredible sense of time, um, you know, in pre click track era. I mean, you listen to a lot of Bonham stuff, it really moves around. When the levee breaks, there's those sections where the whole song slows down and then speeds up again. Um, and all, you know, that was, you wouldn't fault anybody for doing that. Sure. But pace, boom, incredible internal clock. Um, so I just wanted to get that awesome. in about the bass drum.
0: <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, Pretty incredible. He only really used the double
2: drum, double bass on that one on Fireball. Nothing fireball, else yeah. ever again. Yeah. Um, it, it is kind of mind blowing. But he'll. But you know, it's like he sit. He has the double pedal, and on that clinic, he just sits down and plays Fireball without. He didn't even have to adjust himself. He just sits down and goes. You know, mm-hmm. incredible. The other thing that I love about Pace is that he plays with all those Deep Purple tribute bands in Europe. Yeah, he's he's sat in with quite a few. How uh, humble is that? You know, like he doesn't really he doesn't have a big ego about it, and probably for him, it's fun to play the material that he doesn't get to play with the current iteration of the band. So they probably all do Burn, you know, and stuff from those records, and they're probably all super fans. So maybe they're doing some of the Come Taste the Band stuff or stuff from the Rod Evans period, you know. And, and here you are. You just made some mu- young musician's day or the
0: story I'm they're going to tell for the rest of their life. You know, that's,
2: that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. But, I mean, good for him. You know, that's, that's the way to do it. That's what keeps you, you know, I'm 50, I'll be 55 in a couple of weeks and my body's kind of beat up from years and years of touring. But I, what I love and what keeps me going as a musician is the variety I play I play a gig at Birdland in New York every Monday mm-hmm. when there is a New York and when there is a Birdland. I've done it for 9 years now and it's uh it's a pretty amazing it's an open mic night but it's at one of the most famous jazz clubs in the world. So the house Trio is incredible. Uh the piano player was Liza Minnelli's music director for 25 years but everybody in the band like knows has an enormous repertoire and Mostly singers come up, although we get tap dancers, we get jazz players. Um, It's a lot of really heavy Broadway people. Like maybe you wouldn't know them in the real world, but in the New York scene and in broad people that were in the original production of Les Mis and this and that people like Bette Midler have come in. Kenny Loggins, Weird Al Yankovic. Mm -hmm. Um, Just it's one of those nights that's become an institution. And when you're, when you're in New York, it's a really entertaining night. The host is hilarious. Very, you know, super witty guy. Um, nobody from Deep Purple has ever come in. But you know who came in and hung out was Leland Sklar. That was really awesome. Oh, yeah. that's great. I mean, when, when somebody like that is there and I'm playing, you know, because it's a long night. It's like a three-hour night. Mm. We never know what's coming, who's going to be there. People just come in off the street. You never know. Everybody from Donny Osmond to... Gunner Nelson. I mean, it's like the most (laughs) eclectic. Um, But if you're a singer, it's a killer band. And, you know, um, we play everything. Uh, So, that I love. Like, that kind of a gig is something I love. It's super challenging. It's a bit terrifying sometimes because it's like, you know, there's always heavies in the audience. Mm -hmm. And you gotta, um, you gotta, you gotta bring it. You know, whether it's a, Sinatra standard, or we played "Don't Stop Believing" before as a jazz trio with a tiny little. That was not easy, um, but it's it's fun and it's the thing that keeps me going. Is like the opportunity to play a really wide variety of music. So I my point is, I can understand why Ian Pace would want to. Like I could not see being in the same band for forty years. You know, I mean, it's it when you're playing the same repertoire night after night you know i've been there and that's not my ideal you know it's no, cool it's, to be a rock it takes a star and play in kind front of big person audiences, to... but,
0: what's that <laughs> it takes a special kind of person to be able to do that i i can't i can't imagine
2: how you could do it either you know but i i think that's just his that's why he's the the only original member so to speak it's just cuz he just keeps on chugging and he that's doesn't right. you know he's it he just seems like i love those those um, those episodes because he's so such a real person, you know. He's just, yeah, just telling these stories about whatever. Meanwhile, he freaking played with David Gilmore and Paul McCartney in the same band. I mean, you yeah. know, for those of us, it's like, <laughs> yeah, like, he's a great drummer, even
0: better guy. And, um, I think as long as he's around, Deep Purple will be around in some form. And uh, who knows when they're all going to hang it up eventually? But he's been there for fifty-three
2: years, and that is unbelievable. Keep keep on going. And have you? I know Glenn Hughes follows the podcast on Twitter. He's he's Mm -hmm. liked a bunch of stuff, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Do any of the other band members have they? Have you had any? opportunity to interview them have any of them been on the podcast we've had don airy on the show um we have
0: we and we've had kind of some back and forth with uh david coverdale and glenn hughes but um nothing more than just kind of some uh just like kind of twitter jokes and things but they they're they're great too they're great guys who will entertain talking to
2: a couple of numbskulls like us about deep purple stuff so we appreciate it Hey man. It's, well, what I have to say again, what you guys are doing is amazing. And I thank you for it. Um, I hope you have continued success. I mean, it's, it's, I've been listening to Deep Purple for over 40 years and <laughs> you know, it's like to be able to hang with people like-minded folks, um, and get into the, to the nitty gritty and share my own experiences. You know, I appreciate you offering me the forum to blather on about my own you know feelings about these these subjects
0: (laughs) yeah well thank well thank you and thank you for your kind words about the show we really appreciate that and lending your expertise about the uh, technical side of it which we don't pretend to understand so (laughs) we really appreciate that so
2: well if you um let me know when the air date happens i have a pretty good mailing list and i'm sure we'll we'll get some people listening definitely awesome well thank you so much for stopping by Sure, man. Absolutely, my pleasure, so John. You got to uh, you got to stop talking so much. Man. You really dominated the conversation tonight. He's he's the uh, he's uh, he's the Ed McMahon of the show
0: for the well, for the, for, for, for interview yeah. for interview segments. Anyway,
1: you do a lot of you do a yeah, beautiful- yeah. When it come, go ahead. Yeah, when it comes to interviews, I'm I usually just hang back and listen. <laughs>
2: Cause you have a lot to say. Uh, I mean, uh, you're, 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 you're a chatterbox on the other interviews or the other, you know, the other yeah. podcasts I've listened to thus far. So. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I try not to force it. If, um, you know, if there's nowhere for me to jump in, I just kind of listen. And it's, it's actually, it's been really, everything you said has been really fascinating. So I don't want you to take that as, as that that um, I wasn't um, <clears throat> engaged because it was, um, yeah, every, you had a lot of interesting stories, so
2: it was great to have you on. Well, thanks, man. And, okay, one, one more question. Sorry. <laughs> this, is, this probably has no answer. On the version of Lazy from Made in Japan, mm. uh, you know, they, they modulate right before Gillen starts singing. They do the lick, and then he comes in. He sings the first two lines. Oh no, he sings the first chorus of the blues. You don't want no money, you don't want no bread. Mm-hmm. Oh, shut up and then he oh my crying now I always wondered <laughs> was he talking to somebody in the band or somebody <laughs> in the audience or was he talking to the, the chick that the song is written about I assume it's a chick maybe wow. it's a guy I don't know do you I even nev- know the reference that I'm yeah, making yeah yeah, yeah. I, but I never thought of it in that context
0: before. I, always, I hmm. guess I always thought of it was like shut up talking to the person the bird, in the song the what, yeah. did you ever think about it John
1: my guess is it's probably like, um, you remember the Denmark concert when he was just like, <laughs> yeah. he was like, he was leaning over and he's like, Oi, yeah. Oi,
0: you know, and he's like, pointing yeah, at like He's like, What's he doing that for? And he's like, I didn't
1: realize he was out, like, yeah. yeah, he was yelling at somebody in the audience. It was obviously causing problems. So maybe he saw somebody in the audience and he was like, Hey, shut up. <laughs> and then he went back to the
2: song. <laughs> It's so weird because like, there's not a lot of room. That would be, my guess. That would room. be my guess. <laughs> yeah. There's not a lot of room for him to get that in. And then he's got to immediately sing the next line. So it seems odd.
0: It's funny. The second you said that, I, I was thinking the Denmark thing. I knew I knew where John's mind was going. Yeah. So and, what is this Denmark thing?
2: I, is that the concert from right around the same time as Made in Japan? There is a concert yeah, that's been on YouTube for a long time. Yeah, it's earlier in 72.
0: It's but, like yeah. uh, Aprilish or something. And, where they're kind of doing the same similar set um and yeah at the very beginning i think they're playing is it highway star john like yeah yeah like very early on in the show and then all he sings maybe the first verse and then he starts like wagging his finger and like oh like john said oh and he's he's like gesturing like like get them out of here so i don't know if there was a fight down in front or 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 what it could have been and but it seemed like the Japanese audience was very tame, though. I can't imagine him yeah. saying shut up to any of them. Yeah, that's true.
2: I but love good. at the end of Space Trucking how, like, the whole thing happens, and then John Lord does the spaceship landing. Yeah. And there's it's just the very, silence. Like, nobody <laughs> said, they're all stunned. <laughs> and finally, it's just like the old. <laughs> and then they're like, <laughs> you know, it's too awesome. It is. I think that space truck and jam, and I know it comes from Mandrake Root and a bunch of other stuff they already were doing, but they just like that was the they just put that together. That whole I have that jam like memorized. Mm-hmm. You know, I could sing you the whole freaking I won't trust me, <laughs> but I love I love that so much. I have one more story. I lied. One more quick story. My dog is scratching at the door, he wants to come in. Um so a couple of years ago, um you know Sky, like Sky Sports and Sky Entertainment like in, yep. in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a commercial the network. competitor to the BBC. And they have Sky Arts. Sky Arts did a four-part series about drummers. Mm-hmm. And they have huge name people in it, including Ian Pace. And the guy somehow got, knew that, like looked up, did a lot of history about drummers and saw that I was a historian. So when they were in New York they, they traveled all over the U S and all over the UK and probably other parts of Europe interviewing drummers. It's a pretty cool show, four parts. Um, and they interviewed, they interviewed me and the guy that was doing it just got really into the stories I was telling. And I told him that I was a deep purple fan and that Ian Pace was my first drum hero. So I did this thing where um, I play along with rock around the clock and I talk about, you know, they bring me in as the drum historian. I talk about rock around the clock and how that related to drumming and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then he said, so we interviewed Chad Smith and he's playing Highway Star. Mm-hmm. And we have Ian, play, Ian Pace playing Highway Star. I guess people, everybody played along to the recording. Mm-hmm. And he said, would you like to play Highway Star? And I was like, are you fucking, are you effing kidding me? (laughs) Yes. So I played along to like the first five minutes or something, three minutes of Highway Star from Made in Japan. Mm -hmm. And he was like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you and Ian and Chad Smith on screen all at the same time, all playing Highway Star to show the originator and two guys from like different sectors of the drum world. And when the thing came out... I was nowhere to be seen. It was only Chad Smith. And I guess uh, I hit the cutting room floor. The cutting that, room floor. I was like crushed, man. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. would have been like a highlight of my life to at least be on the same screen as Ian Pace playing, you know, that amazing, iconic drum part. We got to get that footage. Uh, yeah, exactly. I should write to the guy and be like, hey where's the where's the footage so okay that's it that's it i'm done well, with story
0: thank you once again for stopping by and uh when you want to record on your own you singing the entirety of space truck and send it to us and we'll put it up as a bonus episode
2: maybe by episode 209 you'll 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 be needing content like that to uh to prop things up yeah,
0: go. we got a special treat for you this week john and i
2: are taking the week off right <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But also, also the opening, the way that Deep Purple opened their concerts during both Mach Two and Mach Three is just so, so awesome. Yeah. The opening of Cal Jam, come on, like it always just sounds like they're sort of warming like a up, freight or train something. like approaching, and then like all it. of a sudden it just turns into music and those little things that. John Lord does, and Richie's always, tu- you know, always tuning. Um, <laughs> well, because when you have that big whammy bar, yeah, you use know. it like he does. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I have to say, also, sorry, listening to the burn thing today and hearing his tracks, it's amazing how different his version of Telecat or Strat- Stratocaster and Marshall amp is from, say, David Gilmour's or <laughs> Jimi Hendrix or however many other guitar players use that same combination and yet totally different sound you know well,
0: it's just it's, like every every just... guy that walked into a guitar center or whatever and bought a strat and a marshall stack and thought he'd go home and sound like <laughs> one of those guys right. and, and didn't right. sound like any of them <laughs> it sounded, sounded like, like a guy who doesn't know how to play the Strat very
2: well you know it's, yeah it's, exactly you can do so much i with mean it, it's bro. it's just so cool so <laughs> anyway stop me before i right. <laughs> talk again and um thank you
0: guys all right. Thank you. Thanks so much for stopping by. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, man, John, I feel like I learned more about the invention of the drum set and the history of the drum set in that little two minute stretch by Daniel Glass than I ever learned in my entire life. It was uh pretty amazing obviously great great chat overall but um great to hear about all the 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 history of that instrument so interesting um growing up our entire lives with the drum set existing and then hearing about this crazy way that it came to be which i just apparently never had the uh uh whatever gumption to go and figure that or learn about it and it's great to have a such a well-spoken educated educator teach us about that really interesting stuff.
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's how you learn about things is like, if somebody's really, when you meet a lot of different people and somebody's really passionate about a subject and they know so much about it, then they, you know, they, you know, we've never, I've never thought about it that way. Like when he was talking about how, uh, you know, the, they had to like, um, what was he talking about? Feathering the bass drum you know, and, and why they did that before mm-hmm. amplification and all that. I mean, that's, that's the type of stuff that like somebody that really is invested in it, it, knows about. And when you talk to somebody and you, you learn that it's just like, yeah, it's just better than like, I mean, who's ever going to pick up a book, like just randomly and read about that. You know, it was just really just interesting to get that point of view. You know, that's why I like talking to different people and You know, it's cool to see that there are people that like, you know, it's almost like a bygone art, you know? Yeah, well, I'm I'm looking forward to picking up his
0: book about it uh, shortly because it's really interesting stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Now, before we close it out, of course, we have to do what? Thank our foundation level patrons coming in at the $1 made up name tier. Els Murders, Spacey Noodles, Leaky Mausoleum, Michael Vader, Stephen Somerville, the Concerto 1999 Phonetic, Raph Spike the Rock Cat and of course JJ Stenard. Thank you so much to all of you for <laughs> John's doing the Italian hand dresser in case you uh didn't didn't see that which you didn't. Oh. Hey. Uh but thank you to all of you uh generous patrons who continue to uh, support the show. We really really appreciate it and uh you yeah, know, tried something a little new this week, a little influences series um to talk to professional musicians working musicians guys with experience and can shed a shed a light on things that we wouldn't even hope to understand so interesting stuff Mm -hmm. and a lot of great stories yeah for sure for sure so all right well until that i'll see you next week my friend all right thank you for listening to the deep purple podcast If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also leave us a review in Apple Podcasts to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening.
2: Right. That brings me to my least favorite Deep Purple classic, Deep Purple song, which is "Mistreated." Oh, oh, just goes on and on, and you the and, fact that Richie no. had to do it.
0: You and John are you
2: and John it's are one of be- my favorites. Oh, really? Okay, You're killing well, me.
0: Well, sorry, I guess. <laughs>